Welcome to Your Team with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph. We are the co-founders and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens. And today we're going to be talking with our friend Jess Leahy all about her new book, The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. But before we talk to her, we're going to talk about Jess Leahy and her bravery in sharing her own story and how that changes all of us and all of our kids. I met Jess Leahy many years ago. I interviewed her about her earlier book, The Gift of Failure, which I recommend everybody reading. It doesn't have to be a new book to get it. I remember hearing that Jess Leahy had written about being in recovery. And I was like, wow, are you sure you got that right? She does not seem like the person who would be an addict. And Jess Leahy talks about that, that addicts don't look one way. They look, in fact, just like her. And so when you hear her story, it does kind of free up the idea that imperfection is just part of life. It's all around us. We're all dealing with something. And when we don't share it, we create a whole narrative in our heads of what that actually looks like. When in fact, there are people out there who look just like us dealing with probably everything that we are dealing with because life is universal and people, no one's the only one. There's, there's nobody, what's, what's the word? Anecdata. I don't know how to use it in a sentence. I just know <laughs> I the word. I think you just did. <laughs> no, no, no. Like, yeah. Anyway, I love the word, but it's the essence is that, you know, we, we all think we experience something on our own. And I remember I was talking to a doctor who I was interviewing and I just asked her this question about sleep and how do you get your, you know, when you're somebody who has thoughts racing through your head all the time. And her response was, you're not special. And I was like, what? And she goes, everyone has thoughts racing through their head all the time. And I was like, oh, I'm kind of insulted and comforted at the same time. Yeah, it reminds me when you just, my head had not gone here, but when you just said that, it made me think I have two friends in particular. I will not name them, but they know who they are if they're going to listen, if they listen to the podcast. And they, I would catch one of them and I'd be like, well, how's your week? Or how's this? And uh, don't want to know. And they would go on and on about something that happened with one of the kids. I would say, I love you and you're so special to me, but you're not special (laughs) because it was just so common, but you feel like you're the only one, especially stuff with kids and navigating it. And the world looks so perfect. And uh, it's just, it is so hard, like that vulnerability. And I I wonder, again, I'm not special, so I'm sure I'm not the only one with this. I often feel like I am burdening someone. I I have this other piece to it. Maybe everyone would say the same thing, that I feel extremely vulnerable about something that's happening with one of the kids, but then I also feel like now I'm burdening someone by telling the story, like having to listen to my story. And I don't know what that's about. I probably need some hours on that one on a couch. Do you have that? Is that just me? I don't, because I live with a mission. And my mission is to be as out there with the things that make me uncomfortable as possible because I, I've over my life, which is longer than yours, maybe a few years from now, you'll you'll mm-hmm. uh, feel the same way. But what I've found in my life is that I never experience anything by myself. And when I say to somebody, like when my youngest left for college, I had tremendous anxiety and not anxiety in like a healthy way, but anxiety where you need to get a therapist and work through it. It turned out a lot of things that were very common to, to women my age. Mm. having to do with postmenopause 
and stage of life, passage of time, and kids leaving all coalescing. And so every time I brought it up with somebody, they would pause and think about it and go, I think that sounds like what I'm dealing with. So I like that feeling. And I like Mm -hmm. when other people do it as well, because I think it's actually what we set out to do with your team, which is to share the struggles in life so that we don't have to live with any shame ever about any of these things because they're so universal and also to get support. I'm not so good at sharing when I'm still struggling with it. Like I'm much better after I have a little sense of what does this look like in my life? And then I'm happy to go out and test the water and see like, is this my own thing? Are other people yeah. experiencing it also? But I do really think that we live in a place where parenting is such a report card that we're so quick to, you know, like kind of hide what's really going on. And it's so liberating to just say like, this is, this is the shit that's going on in my house right now. And we're working hard at it. Or if you're like me, you say it afterwards and you just let everybody know, like, you know, I don't think I was alone in this experience, but it was rough. It was rough going. Yeah. I'm like, I think I'm, I'm both of those stories, Sue. Like I have, when I'm going through it, I have a couple people I'll talk to, right? Like a much smaller circle. And then in retrospect, and it's probably a vulnerability thing, in retrospect, it's easier to say like, okay, so here's, yes, we did this or we did that, or this didn't work, or this is where we were, or he was, or she was. I can't always find the words until I've figured it out. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, sometimes it's, and also even in some difficult situations, I might try and tell the story and then say that didn't go so well. I'm not, I don't love the way I shared that. So, but I'm, I guess I've gotten to the point where I'm okay getting it wrong a few times and just keep testing it. And I guess the biggest moment for me was when my son came out and I didn't quite know how to share the information. And so there were a number of times where I saw people kind of like do this, like, whoa. And it wasn't about having a gay kid. It was about what I had said to introduce that. So I was like, okay, I won't do that one again. But, you know, you kind of, you have to find language around new experiences in your lives. Like, how do you, do, is there a word to define it? Is it a feeling? How are you going to talk about it? There was a conversation going on in one of our Facebook groups, I believe, Sue, that we had shared the other night. And I, a mom was struggling with her kid. And so her words were very beautiful about how this group has helped her. And when you read through all the comments, and there were a lot of them, they were, it made the hair on the back of my neck stand up because they were just so beautiful and supportive. And yeah, I've been there too. And it gets better. And the group is on Facebook and it's called Working Hard to Raise Teens. There's something fascinating about what took place there because we've had other people tell stories of what's going on in their lives and they don't always get support. And so this woman started with, I've been in this group for two years. I've been nervous about Mm -hmm. sharing a story and I really only want support. And so that made a whole different kind of conversation happen and led to a conversation between a bunch of us talking about how, how great is it if you can actually ask for what you need? Oh my God. And so she did that. She, instead of like this other woman was in no way wrong for Mm -hmm. saying I'm having this problem. But she didn't anticipate the negativity of it. And this other, the next woman got to see it and was like, I can't live with that. I'm too fragile right now. So I'm just begging all of you to come back to me with support. And that is all she got. It comment was beautiful. Comment. Yeah. Yeah. And she felt the love. She felt, she felt, as Stephanie said, she felt hugged. So I think some of that, the moral to that story to me was, if you have clarity about what you need, put it out in the world that way. 
because people can't guess what you need. We live in a world where the rom-coms are all about someone guessing what the other one wants. That's romance to us. Like we think when you showed up with candy and pop for me, you read my mind. (laughs) And when you said, I love you, you knew that was the perfect moment to say it. And yet for the regular ones of us, life doesn't work that way. And so like in marriage, you know, often the spouse is not going to get it right for the other one. And so it does often mean all the time. (laughs) (laughs) So every time you're not going to get it right. unless. (laughs) And my husband, I remember my husband saying to me, after I had one of the kids, I asked him and, you know, we had, it was a boy, we had a bris and I was putting on clothes, which was, you know, it's a week later. It's not a good time. And I said, how do I look? <laughs> Stephanie's spitting her coffee out. And he, he, he just like, first of all, he had that deer in headlights panic. And he said, I'm so sorry. I don't think I could get this right. <laughs> bad for you in this story, but I feel bad for him. Yeah, no, he, he knew. Like, if he said, you look beautiful, I was going to be like, I do not. I I just had a baby. And if he said, you know, well, for someone who had just had a baby, you look great. I'd be like, that is so mean. Okay, I got to tell this story real quick. So my sister, when she was pregnant with maybe her first, I can't remember. And my said, you've met my sister. She's so petite. And so when she gained 25, 30 pounds, whatever, her husband comes with her to the, the appointment she steps on the scale, and the nurse reads off the weight, and Stephen says, wow. <laughs> Suzanne, Suzanne's standing there, she turns around, she goes, did you just say wow? He's like, no, uh-uh, no. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that story in 24 years. That is so funny. Because you and know the story has not been repeated since then. <laughs> Every week, every time you get together. (laughs) That's fantastic. Okay, so we just wanted to talk about one more thing as it relates to what Jess Leahy is going to talk about. And by the way, it's an extraordinary conversation. I mean, it is so valuable for parents to hear what Jess, all of her research, which is amazing. The book is amazing. But one of the things that you really get a sense for is that we're, we're all in this journey as parents of trying to figure out best practices. And I think that for me, there was this assumption. It was always the hardest moment for me when I felt like I followed what either someone had told me or what I called myself. I did exactly what I promised myself I would do. And yet it didn't change the outcome or I didn't get the outcome I was hoping for. And so when it comes to raising your kids and talking about drugs and alcohol, There are lots of protective factors that you're going to learn about with Jess. And at the end, you still can't guarantee your kid's not going to have an issue with use or abuse of drugs and alcohol. That piece, I said to Sue right before the podcast, it it gets me teary thinking about it. It just speaks to how hard it all is. I think one of the things we believe so strongly is that we are all doing our best. (laughs) And it's the control piece it's like everything in life. It's so unpredictable. And and it reminds me of what we were just talking about, Sue, how you can look back and maybe tell your story and see the journey. And, and if you're lucky enough, right, <laughs> to have uh, endured and come out on the other side of things and share the story, which, which Jess Leahy does just so beautifully. But boy, it really, if your heart can hurt, <laughs> this is one where I felt like, wow, you know, and I felt privileged to be in the, in the conversation, to be honest. I really did. 
And not to take this conversation, which you'll see Jess owns it and you'll want to get the book, but it really segues nicely into the program we're doing about college, which is called Destination College. And hopefully, I think we can put the the URL in the link, but it's starting March 9th with Jeff Salingo and Kedra Ishup and, and goes for eight weeks. And it's going to be so helpful about every aspect of the college admissions process. But one of the things we're going to repeat over and over again during those eight weeks is that you can do every one of these things that all the experts recommend and your, your kids still can get rejected from their first choice school. So we want to dispel the myth that doing everything right there or in every, any other aspect. And we all know it personally from job interviews. Like, you know, you do your homework, you're all set up, you, you, everything went perfectly and you didn't get it. Or relationships, you it's have so a crush true. on somebody. So we know it everywhere else, but there are certain places where we forget it. We're going to put our seatbelts on when it comes to the conversation with our kids about drugs and alcohol, but we can't guarantee that there's no accident. And we're going to put our seatbelts on when it comes to the college admissions process and do as much as we can to lay the groundwork for something that works for our fam- each of our families and then let go of being wedded to the outcome. With all of what we just said in mind... Here we enter into a dynamic, wonderful conversation with Jessica Leahy about the addiction inoculation, an amazing book that she just wrote. We can't wait for you to join us. There is no hood like parenthood. When you meet a fellow parent, you just kind of get each other on a whole nother level. Hi, I'm Kanika Chanda Gupta. I'm a former CNN journalist, mom of three, including twins, and host of That's Total Mom Sense, the podcast. I interview change makers on their life lessons, legacy, and superpower of intuition, aka their mom sense and dad sense. I've had some pretty amazing parents on my show. Hey, what's up? I'm Kelly Rowland. Hi, this is Chelsea Clinton. It's me, Bobby Brown. Can't wait to share my story. Episodes release every Thursday. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and on YouTube. Join my tribe at thatstotalmomsense.com and follow me on Instagram at Kanika Chadda Gupta. I'm thrilled to be on this journey with you. Our guest today is Jess Leahy. For over 20 years, she's taught every grade from 6th to 12th in both public and private schools. She writes about education, parenting, and child welfare for the Atlantic, Vermont Public Radio, The Washington Post, and The New York Times, and is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. Her second book, The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence, will be released in April 2021. It's hard to just start. Hi, Jess. <laughs> Hi, Susan. <laughs> <Hi, Susan. laughs> Can you give us the short version of how you became an alcoholic? A short version. That's a tough one. Mainly for me, I have a, a slightly different picture. You know, a lot of people talk about that first drink that they had and how it just, or their first drug. And, and for different people, it can be different substances. It just sort of depends on how they plug into our unique brain system. And, you know, a lot of people talk about the fact that they have a, a drink and they go, 
oh my gosh, that's what's been missing, whether it's to solve the social anxiety or to feel like you belong or to feel like you're enough or to escape. And for me, it really wasn't like that. In fact, I stayed way away from alcohol and drugs for a very, very long time. I slid into it through some back door, through some sort of like, I wasn't I was paying attention, but it got through anyway. And so in my 40s, I suddenly realized that I was drinking too much and it was getting worse. And I knew before, what years before I finally had to come to terms with the fact that, oh my gosh, I am an alcoholic, that I was I was well on my way to getting there. So, it, you know, it's very different for di- different people. Mine appeared once my kids were, you know, born and I just... I don't know. I think it had to do more with habit forming and alleviating anxiety and, for me, alleviating some boredom. And yet you have a family history. Absolutely. And that's, you know, when I get at why I wrote this book, the big answer for that question for me is because I, as a parent, have two children with this increased sort of— we we know that genetics is about 50 to 60% of your risk picture. So I have kids with increased risk from the get-go. So what do I do? You know, what there are all these hunches out there about what seems to work for prevention and and the big agencies around drug and alcohol abuse say you know, substance abuse, substance use disorder is preventable, but I wanted to know what that word actually means. Like, well, well, by doing what? What exactly works? What exactly doesn't work? What can I control? What can't I control? What does the big picture look like? Especially, you know, for all kids, but for me personally, for kids that have that increased risk dangling over their heads at all times. But yes, I come from a very long line of drug and alcohol abusers. Can you tell us about the kids you work with? For the last five years of my 20-year teaching career, yeah, I was working in an inpatient drug and alcohol rehab for kids, which was so lucky for me. As part of my recovery, I volunteered some time to go talk and lead a meeting at this recovery center that also hosts men and women, adult men and women and kids. And I, of course, as a teacher, wanted to go speak to the kids. And I was sitting there in this meeting, look, and I looked around and I said, oh, hold on a second. If you guys are here 24-7, you have to have teachers somewhere. And it turns out that they do. The Department of Education in Vermont actually oversees their education program. And I became their English and writing teacher. And it was one of the best teaching jobs I've ever had. So you talk about in your book that, you know, you have this writer's lens where you're observing people and listening to their stories and finding themes. And you did the same thing in your Saturday night recovery meet, 12-step meetings. How Mm -hmm. do you say that? 12-step meetings, are that's good, yep. So you had that lens at your Saturday night 12-step meetings, and you noticed trends in the stories that people were sharing. Can you, from that, tell us what the top risk factors from those stories, what you culled from them? Well, actually, I want to make it really, really clear. So the research in this book is a not not based on my anecdotal evidence of having gone to hundreds of, you know, recovery meetings. Although anyone who's been to a 12-step recovery meeting can tell you there are themes that emerge over and over and over again. The research that backs all of the stuff that I talk about in terms of risk factors and protective factors is based in evidence-based peer-reviewed studies. But the, the stories that do tend to come out of this are absolutely people who have substance abuse in their backgrounds, people who had, and this comes out of my work with the kids at the recovery center as well, abuse in their backgrounds, what are called in the bigger terminology, adverse childhood experiences, some sort of trauma that 
really causes someone to need to self-medicate or to go somewhere else, get out of their, themselves, get away from the emotions that they're having trouble dealing with. And that's a, a story you'll hear over and over and over again. And the other big one is... Um, undiagnosed learning issues, early aggression, um, children that show aggression against each other, or early social ostracism. And you can see how these risk factors tend to get, they get tangled up. Because if you have early social ostracism, you may also have academic issues, and you may also have issues with aggression. So they tend to fold in on each other and become a very complicated picture. So early intervention is really important. So let's move to the science a bit. You share so much about scientific data about our teens' brains. So what are the top three things that you wish all parents understood about our teens' brains? Well, for a long time, we thought that, you know, kids' brains were done growing when they were done growing in terms of mass and size. And that's just obviously not the case if you, you know, a 10-year-olds are not fully cooked. And I think the most important thing to run to understand about kids' brains is that the, the part of our brains that develops last is the part that handles executive function, the sort of big organizer, time planner, transitioner, that, that adulting part of the brain. And that is not fully cooked until kids are in their early to mid 20s. So there are a lot of things that are happening during that time when that growth is happening that make our brains uniquely plastic, uniquely vulnerable to the outside world. So not only are kids having issues with time management and planning and that kind of stuff, but they're also uniquely susceptible to drugs that hit on the areas of the brain, for example, that manage memory, like the hippocampus. So there are lots of studies that show that alcohol, marijuana, all different kinds of drugs have express impact on an adolescent developing brain that it might not in an adult brain or an effect that might be in the adult brain but is way worse in a developing brain. So it's really important to understand that I'm not just saying, you know, ooh, kids, drugs are bad. I'm saying drugs are bad for a developing brain. And if we can just wait, just wait for a couple of years till your brain is done developing, then go at it as grownups. You know, if you want to go do these things, that's you as making grown-up decisions. But your brain isn't done cooking yet. And we need, it's really important that we let it get there. As you say, it's delay, delay, delay. Yeah. Okay. In the book, The Addiction Inoculation, you talked about something that I found, I just, I couldn't wrap my head around it. So this idea is that if kids black out after drinking less than their peers, that's a warning sign. That's actually a warning sign for adults and kids. So if you're if you're the kind of kid that if you have found out or that your kid has done this or you're the kind of kid that blacked out fairly early on, it just shows that your brain is dealing with the alcohol differently and that's a really bad sign. Blackouts are a really bad sign if you're talking about your tendency or your the likelihood that you might end up with a substance use disorder down the road. It just has to do with the way your body and brain handles the alcohol and it's not good. Okay, so we're going to talk about zero tolerance. So if we think about Europe, right, where addiction is lower, alcohol is more, much more normalized. I'm using air quotes in a podcast, someone can say, right, much more normalized. And you say to let go of that story. Yeah, I, and it's so hard not to interrupt you when you when you put the words out there where addiction is lower because we have this fantasy of France or Italy where kids grow up having a sip of alcohol and they grow up having their watered down wine and 
it's so great because kids grow up with this sense of moderation, this sort of what it looks like to be a responsible drinker and know how to handle it. But the problem is, is when you look at the when you look at the data, the WHO data, the World Health Organization data on on substance abuse, Europe has the highest levels of alcohol abuse in the world. If you look at sort of, for example, France, until just a couple of decades ago, allowed kids to drink, older teens to drink like in the school cafeteria. And there are rules about how much, you know, when their health services say, here's how much a healthy amount of drinking is. They've had to scale that back over the past couple of years because the the, uh, level of alcohol abuse has become so high that they've had to say, oh, wait, maybe what we thought were normal levels of drinking and healthy levels of drinking aren't healthy levels of drinking. Maybe we need to scale that back. So we really need to let go of that fantasy. And I, like I said, and I say this very clearly in the book, I was so excited to raise my kids with a sense of moderation. We'd let them have a little sip at dinner and all that stuff. What we know really clearly is that kids who sip, parents who sort of let their kids have tastes at home are more likely, far more likely to have kids who have substance abuse disorder, substance use disorder, excuse me, as they get older. Well, that's a different take on what we want to <laughs> yeah. believe. You know, right. it's, it's like we want to believe that other story so badly. It just sounds... I know. It sounds wonderful, doesn't it? And I believed it too. I went off to Italy when I was in high school and I didn't drink because, uh, you know, for me, my reasoning was about fear of becoming, you know, a, an alcoholic myself because of the example that was in front of me. But at the same time, I liked to attribute it to the fact that my parents had let me have sips here and there and it hadn't been that big of a deal for me, whereas my peers went crazy and drank and were so sick they couldn't go out and do things the next day. So I let myself believe that as well. And it's really a romantic a romantic idea, and it, it's just not true. The data does not back it up. It is not true. Let go of the European moderation myth. Okay, well, what the data does support is that there are protective factors. So you have a long list of them. Can you give us like the top five? The big ones, so there's a, the big one and in relationship to what we were just talking about is this whole delay, delay, delay. And the reason we say delay, delay, delay is that the older your kid is when they start using substances, the lower their risk is for lifetime substance use disorder. So, you know, the numbers at 13 are very, very different from the numbers at 15, 17, 21. They go down, down, down. And the older your kid is when they start, the lower their chances of becoming, uh, having a problem later on in life. But it- it does beg it does beg your question though it begs your story like you yeah it absolutely does it absolutely does and i think what's so hard about my story is that you know you can't point to me and say oh you know there is one way this works and i think the at the heart of this book is this is going to really depend on your family, your child. You know, we there is no one gene that is responsible for substance abuse, but there are genes that are interconnected that may be responsible for substance use and personality. And so knowing your kid's personality type is actually somewhat important to understanding how to put various protective factors in place. What would work for my kids as protective factors may not work for your kids because my kids are, may be different from your kids. So understanding what makes your kid tick and how your kid works and what makes what drives them is a really important part of coming up with the right protective factors for your kid. The last thing I want to do is create the illusion that there's some, like, if you just do all of these things in their totality for every single kid, it's always going to work. That's just not the case. It's what every parent wants. If you do A, B, C, D, E, I've protected them for life. I've created them, right? They're safe. 
I think of all of this as like one of those old timey sort of scales of justice, right? So one side is risk and one side is protection. My kids' risk side is just heavier because they've got the genetics on both sides of our family. Both my husband and I have substance abuse going back generations. So the risk is heavier on our side. And then there are other things that I could do. Like I mentioned in the book, we moved my kid right before high school started. Transitions are a big time of risk for kids. That risk side, the heavier it gets, the more protection. I want to heap on the protection side in order to try to outweigh that heavy risk side. So I'm going to try all of them. I'm going to try getting a pet. Is the, you know, is the evidence on whether or not getting a pet going to actually protect your kid? Well, it's really, really mixed. We know it can have some effects, and these are all really small studies with recovering kids. Obviously, schools are now taking in, you know, therapy dogs to sort of help reduce anxiety at school because they help release oxytocin and lower anxiety. So can that help? I don't know, but we got another dog because of it because we happen to be the kind of family who's all down for that. But there are lots of other things like making sure we're having dinner together, making sure we're communicating clearly, making sure we're talking about substance use from a very early age. And so, you know, I know we're talking about teenagers, but that means that if we wait until middle school to start talking about substance use prevention and abuse prevention, we are waiting too late. These programs that we need to do in schools, and keep in mind, only 57% of schools have a, have a substance use, uh, substance abuse prevention program, and only 10% of those are actually evidence-based. So we need to have better programs in schools, which I outline very in-depth in the book, and we need to be talking about about stuff like, you know, the medicines in the cabinet, and we don't take medicines that don't have our names on them from a very early age. We need to talk about it a lot. What's been really funny about the, the communication end of this is my son was in a human biology class in high school, and the teacher said, do your, you know, sort of took a poll of the students and said, do your parents ever talk to you about drugs and alcohol? And my kid was like, when doesn't she talk to us about <laughs> drugs and alcohol? It's become a very normalized thing in our house, and it's like the sex conversation. You know, there is no one sex conversation. There's lots of developmentally appropriate sex conversations as you go on. And, you know, having conversations about drugs and alcohol get easier the more you have them. And yes, it's scary. It is so scary, but not talking about it is what causes the problem, not bringing it up. So the more you bring it up, just like the sex conversation, the more it's a part of normal family discussion, the easier it becomes. And I, I say that from a place of, you know, as a parent, the first time I had to start talking about it, I threw up. So, you know, that was partially my baggage, partially my fears about, you know, talking to my kids about those things. But now we talk about it on a regular basis. Well, I think what's interesting is, as you're telling this story is thinking about talking about it with our teens. And I'm looking at us. So we've got 10 teen or 10 kids between us. Sue, Sue's carrying half the weight of that and you and I are carrying <laughs> the other five. And so how kids respond to that in each kid is mm-hmm. so different, right? right? And so it's like what we've always, you know, we, Sue used to make a joke a long ago in YT's life about, you know, a conversation does kind of take two people. Right. But, right. you know, there's got to be someone driving that conversation. And even if they're not saying anything, it's still important that as the parent, you're the one talking about it, even if you're not getting much response on the other side. 
And this is an evolving picture. We're learning more and more about how the brain reacts to drugs and alcohol in the adolescent brain all the time. And so unfortunately for my younger kid, the rule is a little different. You know, with my older kid, I was okay with the moderation thing because I truly believed in that European myth. But now my younger kid is like, this is so unfair. Just because you learned some stuff, the rules have changed. And, and you know, Ben got away with all kinds of stuff that I can't get away with. And, you know, my job at that point is to model what I want to see in them, which is I was doing the best with the information I had at that time. I learned some things and it's reliable information. I happen to be married to a, to a physician and statistician. And so, you know, we double check all this stuff and it is reliable information. And what we know is that if we keep you away from drugs and alcohol until you're older, the older you get, the better it is for you. And I wouldn't be a good parent if I wasn't doing that for you. You're the only parent whose kids are going to talk about how it got harsher for the younger kid. (laughs) (laughs) I want to go back to the family dinner. I have two questions on that. One is, you know, it doesn't suit everybody's lifestyle in terms of jobs. So can we expand that discussion? And can it be, can you, I mean, there's so much emphasis on the family dinner And if you can't do the family dinner, can you do the family something else? Yeah, the family dinner, it was, is not my original idea that comes, Joseph Califano uh, wrote about that earlier than I, well before I did. But the family dinner is really emblematic of a connection point. It is emblematic of a time. I mean, for him, it's a very literal family dinner. And research does show that, you know, families who sit down, the more frequently you sit down for dinner as an entire family, the lower your risk. But there's confounders in there, statistical confounders, right? Families that are more able to sit down for, you know, dinner altogether are probably families that have more time and maybe a two-parent household, that kind of thing. So, I like to think of family dinner as emblematic of a bigger moment of connection. And that can be on drives. That can be on... So having time just to talk, to get past the surface conversation that we tend to lead with, like, you know, how'd you do on that French test? That kind of stuff, to get to the deeper stuff. Um, In order to get there, you need to have time. And that time is what part of family dinner is all about. And looking each other in the eye and just keeping tabs on each other. That's what happens at a family dinner. So if you can have that happen some other way, then absolutely great. So Jess, you have a lot of great recommendations. And as parents, of course, we want to change everything, but we can't change (laughs) everything at once. And, you know, um, what are the top three? The top one for me always, and this goes back to gift of failure stuff, is I really do try to focus more on the process and less on the end product of, you know, did they win, lose? Did they get an A? Did they get an F? You know, did they succeed? Did they fail at this endeavor? That sort of process of always learning helps me get through these moments of, oh, crap, I did that wrong. I really mucked that one up. So copping to that with my kid and saying, you know what, I really handled that badly. And I went and I learned some more stuff and we're going to learn from this and I'm going to learn from this and I'm going to be a better parent out of this. That's got to be at the base of everything we do as parents, keeping an emphasis on learning, learning from our experiences and not worrying so much about the end result. The other big thing I think it's important to to talk about, well, is to talk about this stuff. For example, right now, parents of teens seem to know, um, when when we survey parents of teens, they know that opiate addiction is dangerous and that it often starts at home. And yet only 10% of parents of adolescents are talking to their kids about 
opiates in the in the medicine cabinet. That's just not a conversation that most parents are having, which is crazy because that's where the conversation has to start. So we have to start talking about this. The more we talk about it, the less shame there is. The more we talk about it, the less horrible it feels to talk about. We also need to think also about our own use. I don't think any of us can come at our children's use slash abuse if we're not really clear about where we are, mainly because kids learn from watching us a little bit more than they learn from listening to us. I mean, we still affect what our kids do based on how we talk to them about things, but they're really watching us. So if we can model at least a healthy response to our own mistakes and a healthy perspective on our own substance use, and doing that requires us to think a little bit about, you know, mommy drinking culture, about, you know, when we say, you know, I just need to have but I can't talk about anything until I have this glass of, of wine to unwind because it's been a really tough day. Putting that glass of wine as the resolution to your end of day stresses, you know, sets you up to show your kids that what you're what you're saying is, is I can't cope with these feelings myself. I need some external substance in order to help me cope with these feelings. And just thinking about those messaging, that messaging is going to be a really important starting place. The book is rich with advice and and biology and storytelling. And yet at the end of the day, as you just said, we can get it all right and mm -hmm. still not have the outcome. Absolutely. There's, there is only so much we can do. And, you know, what's really great, this book is all about prevention, not about treatment. But when, you know, if I had gone in the direction of treatment and talked about it in this book, one of the things I would have been saying over and over again is that it's not in the end What's important if a, a problem does start to emerge is not to cast blame on whose fault it is, who could have done what. I think in being proactive, I'm doing that because I want my kids to be healthy and also so that I can get to a place where they are launched and I can say, I really did heap all the preventive factors on them that I could have. You know, we tr we at least tried. You know, I even talk in the book about the fact that some of the things we tried, like meditating and stuff like that, was a bust. But that's okay. It was, you know, an experience that we had together. It was and it was like one of those family dinner moments. My kid talked about how, what meditation did or didn't do for him. It turns out I just found out recently he's meditating on his his own. Um, and that's something that that is really cool. You know, you find out things about your kids when you spend time and listen to them and try things together. So whether or not my kids, I have no idea. I can't predict, you know, and plus I can get them into adulthood. And if you follow my story, they could end up 40 and they're drinking ramping up. But I know one of the sayings in 12 Step is that you know, the high is never quite as good once you've been to a few meetings because you've got that little messaging in your head about, wait, is this a problem? Wait, hold on, is this healthy? You know, you get that 12-step sort of messaging in your head or that sort of reality check in your head. And so all I can hope is that when they get, if they get to be 40 and their drinking starts to slide in an unhealthy direction, they'll have my example to look to, to know that they can get better, that they can stop if they if they really try hard enough and that maybe this is something that is unhealthy for them. So that's all I can ever hope for, is that I'm, I'm a good role model for them and I gave them all the information. So Jess, we're going to wrap up with the question we ask all of our guests. What is the biggest myth about teens? The biggest myth about teens I address in this book, and it's one that I find really comforting. And 
all the time parents come to me, they're like, I just don't get it. How can they be so dumb? How can they not understand the circumstances? How can they not understand the consequences of their actions? It turns out teenagers are acutely aware of the consequences of their actions. In some cases, they can be better than adults at understanding the negative, possible negative outcomes. But here's the deal. Adolescents weigh those risks differently. They weigh, they count the positive, possible positive benefits as bigger than the negative, possible negative outcomes. So that shot of dopamine, that shot of adrenaline, that novelty, that social acceptance, that just weighs heavier than the, but I could get arrested, but I could get hurt. It's not that they don't know them. It's just that they weigh them differently. So if we can know that and know that about our kids, we can talk to them from a place that they might understand, like saying, you know, I totally get that it's really important for you to go to this party so that you can, you know, be accepted by these kids, but we really do need to talk about the risk here. Understanding where teens are coming from is the first place to having empathy for our kids. And the more empathy we have for our kids, the better parents we can be. Jessica Leahy, author of The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. Thank you so much for being here with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I love talking about teenagers. They're the best. Thanks for joining us for Your Teen with Sue and Steph. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. Also, if you want to receive our newsletter, head on over to yourteenmag.com. Your Team with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer Michael D'Aloya, plus producer Hannah Leach and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. If you like today's podcast, please leave us an iTunes review or send the episode to a friend. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com, at evergreenpodcast.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Hey Hey there! there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Sleepover Cinema, Cinema. our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.